Lecture 6 of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in June 2010. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture 6. Summary of Facts for Lecture 6. Science before Newton. Dr. Gilbert of Colchester, physician to Queen Elizabeth, was an excellent experimenter and made many discoveries in magnetism and electricity. He was contemporary with Tycho Brahe and lived from 1540 to 1603. Francis Bacon, Lord Verulam, 1561 to 1626, though a brilliant writer, is not specially important as regards science. He was not a scientific man, and his rules for making discoveries or methods of induction have never been consciously, nor often indeed unconsciously, followed by discoverers. They are not in fact practical rules at all, though they were so intended. His really strong doctrines are that phenomena must be studied direct, and that variations in the ordinary course of nature must be induced by aid of experiment but he lacked the scientific instinct for pursuing these great truths into detail and special cases. He sneered at the work and methods of both Gilbert and Galileo, and rejected the Copernican theory as absurd. His literary gifts have conferred on him an artificially high scientific reputation, especially in England. At the same time, his writings undoubtedly helped to make popular the idea of there being new methods for investigating nature, and, by insisting on the necessity for freedom from preconceived ideas and opinions, they did much to release men from the bondage of Aristotelian authority and scholastic tradition. The greatest name between Galileo and Newton is that of Descartes. René Descartes was born at La Haye in Turenne, 1596, and died at Stockholm in 1650. He did important work in mathematics, physics, anatomy, and philosophy, was greatest as a philosopher and mathematician. At the age of 21, he served as a volunteer under Prince Maurice of Nassau, but spent most of his later life in Holland. His famous discourse on method appeared at Leiden in 1637, and his Principia at Amsterdam in 1644, great pains being taken to avoid the condemnation of the church. Descartes' main scientific achievement was the application of algebra to geometry. His most famous speculation was the theory of vortices, invented to account for the motion of planets. He also made many discoveries in optics and physiology. His best-known immediate pupils were the Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia and Christina, Queen of Sweden. He founded a distinct school of thought, the Cartesian, and was the precursor of the modern mathematical method of investigating science, just as Galileo and Gilbert were the originators of the modern experimental method. Lecture 6. Descartes and his theory of vortices. After the dramatic life we have been considering in the last two lectures, it is well to have a breathing space, to look round on what has been accomplished and to review the state of scientific thought before proceeding to the next great era, for we are still in the early morning of scientific discovery, 
the dawn of the modern period faintly heralded by copernicus brought nearer by the work of tycho and kepler and introduced by the discoveries of galileo the dawn has occurred but the sun is not yet visible it is hidden by the clouds and mists of the long night of ignorance and prejudice the light is sufficient indeed to render these earth-born vapours more visible it is not sufficient to dispel them a generation of slow and doubtful progress must pass before the first ray of sunlight can break through the eastern clouds and the full orb of day itself appear it is this period of hesitating progress and slow leavening of men's ideas that we have to pass through in this week's lecture it always happens thus the assimilation of great and new ideas is always a slow and gradual process there is no haste either here or in any other department of nature die zeit ist unendlich lang steadily the forces work sometimes seeming to accomplish nothing sometimes even the motion appears retrograde but in the long run the destined end is reached and the course whether of a planet or of men's thoughts about the universe is permanently altered then the controversy was about the earth's place in the universe now if there be any controversy of the same kind it is about man's place in the universe but the process is the same a startling statement by a great genius or prophet general disbelief and it may be an attitude of hostility gradual acceptance by a few slow spreading among the many ending in universal acceptance and faith often as unquestioning and unreasoning as the old state of unfaith had been now the process is comparatively speedy twenty years accomplishes a great deal then it was tediously slow and a century seemed to accomplish very little periodical literature may be responsible for some waste of time but it certainly assists the rapid spread of ideas the rate with which ideas are assimilated by the general public cannot even now be considered excessive but how much faster it is than it was a few centuries ago may be illustrated by the attitude of the public to darwinism now twenty years after the origin of species as compared with their attitude to the copernican system a century after the revolutionibus by the way it is i know presumptuous for me to have an opinion but i cannot hear darwin compared to or mentioned along with newton without a shudder the stage in which he found biology seems to me far more comparable with the ptolemaic era in astronomy and he himself to be quite fairly comparable to copernicus let us proceed to summarize the stage at which the human race had arrived at the epoch with which we are now dealing the copernican view of the solar system had been stated restated fought and insisted on a chain of brilliant telescopic discoveries had made it popular and accessible to all men of any intelligence henceforth it must be left to slowly percolate and sink into the minds of the people for the nations were waking up now and were accessible to new ideas england especially was in some sort at the zenith of its glory or if not at the zenith was in that full flush of youth and expectation and hope which is stronger and more prolific of great deeds and thoughts than a maturer period 
a common cause against a common and detested enemy had roused in the hearts of englishmen a passion of enthusiasm and patriotism so that the mean elements of trade their cheating yard ones were forgotten for a time the armada was defeated and the nation's true and conscious adult life began commerce was now no mere struggle for profit and hard bargains it was full of the spirit of adventure and discovery a new world had been opened up who could tell what more remained unexplored men awoke to the splendour of their inheritance and away sailed drake and frobisher and raleigh into the lands of the west for literature you know what time it was the author of hamlet and othello was alive it is needless to say more and what about science the atmosphere of science is a more quiet and less stirring one it thrives best when the fever of excitement is allayed it is necessarily a later growth than literature already however our second great man of science was at work in a quiet country town second in point of time i mean roger bacon being the first dr gilbert of colchester was the second in point of time and the age was ripening for the time when england was to be honoured with such a galaxy of scientific luminaries hook and boyle and newton as the world had not yet known yes the nations were awake in all directions as draper says nature was investigated in all directions new methods of examination were yielding unexpected and beautiful results on the ruins of its ivy-grown cathedrals ecclesiasticism or scholasticism surprised and blinded by the breaking day sat solemnly blinking at the light and life about it absorbed in the recollection of the night that had passed dreaming of new phantoms and delusions in its wished-for return and vindictively striking its talons at any derisive assailant who incautiously approached too near of the work of gilbert there is much to say so there is also of roger bacon whose life i am by no means sure i did right in omitting but neither of them had much to do with astronomy and since it is in astronomy that the most startling progress was during these centuries being made i have judged it wiser to adhere mainly to the pioneers in this particular department only for this reason i do pass gilbert with but slight mention he knew of the copernican theory and thoroughly accepted it it is convenient to speak of it as the copernican theory though you know that it has been considerably improved in detail since the first crude statement by copernicus but he made in it no changes he was a cultivated scientific man and an acute experimental philosopher his main work lay in the domain of magnetism and electricity the phenomena connected with the mariner's compass had been studied somewhat by roger bacon and they were now examined still more thoroughly by gilbert whose treatise de magnete marks the beginning of the science of magnetism as an appendix to that work he studied the phenomenon of amber which had been mentioned by thales he resuscitated this little fact after its burial of two thousand two hundred years and greatly extended it he it was who invented the name electricity i wish it had been a shorter one mankind invents names much better than do philosophers what can be better than heat light sound how favourably they compare with electricity magnetism galvanism electromagnetism and 
magnetoelectricity. The only long-established monosyllabic name I know invented by a philosopher is gas, an excellent attempt which ought to be imitated. Of Lord Bacon, who flourished about the same time, a little later, it is necessary to say something, because many persons are under the impression that to him and his novum organon, the reawakening of the world and the overthrow of Aristotelian tradition are mainly due. His influence, however, has been exaggerated. I am not going to enter into a discussion of the novum organon and the mechanical methods which he propounded as certain to evolve truth if patiently pursued, for this is what he thought he was doing, giving to the world an infallible recipe for discovering truth, with which any ordinarily industrious man could make discoveries by means of collection and discrimination of instances. You will take my statement for what it is worth, but I assert this, that many of the methods which Bacon lays down are not those which the experience of mankind has found to be serviceable, nor are they such as a scientific man would have thought of devising. True it is that a real love and faculty for science are born in a man, and that to the man of scientific capacity rules of procedure are unnecessary. His own intuition is sufficient, or he has mistaken his vocation, but that is not my point. It is not that Bacon's methods are useless because the best men do not need them. If they had been founded on a careful study of the methods actually employed, though it might be unconsciously employed by scientific men, as the means of induction stated long after by John Stuart Mill were founded, then, no doubt, their statement would have been a valuable service and a great thing to accomplish. But they were not this. They are the ideas of a brilliant man of letters, writing in an age when scientific research was almost unknown, about a subject in which he was an amateur. I confess I do not see how he, or John Stuart Mill, or anyone else writing in that age, could have formulated the true rules of philosophizing. Because the materials and information were scarcely to hand. Science and its methods were only beginning to grow. No doubt it was a brilliant attempt. No doubt, also, there are many good and true points in the statement, especially in his insistence on the attitude of free and open candor with which the investigation of nature should be approached. No doubt there was much beauty in his allegories of the errors into which men were apt to fall, the idola of the marketplace, of the tribe, of the theater, and of the den, but all this is literature, and on the solid progress of science may be said to have had little or no effect. Descartes' Discourse on Method was a much more solid production. You will understand that I speak of Bacon purely as a scientific man, as a man of letters, as a lawyer, a man of the world, and a statesman, he is beyond any criticism of mine. I speak only of the purely scientific aspect of the Novum Organon. The essays and the advancements of learning are masterly productions, and as a literary man he takes high rank. The overpraise which, in the British Isles, has been lavished upon his scientific importance is being followed abroad by what may be an unnecessary amount of detraction. This is always the worst of setting up a man on too high a pinnacle. Someone has to undertake the ungrateful task of pulling him down again. 
Justus von Liebig addressed himself to this task with some vigor in his Reden und Abhandlung, Leipzig, 1874, where he quotes from Bacon a number of suggestions for absurd experimentation. The next paragraph I read, not because I endorse it, but because it is always well to hear both sides of a question. You have probably been long accustomed to read over estimates of Bacon's importance and extravagant laudation of his writings as making an epoch in science. Hear what Draper says on the opposite side. Quote, the more closely we examine the writings of Lord Bacon, the more unworthy does he seem to have been of the great reputation which has been awarded to him. The popular delusion to which he owes so much originated at a time when the history of science was unknown. They who first brought him into notice knew nothing of the old school of Alexandria. This boasted founder of a new philosophy could not comprehend and would not accept the greatest of all scientific doctrines when it was plainly set before his eyes. It has been represented that the invention of the true method of physical science was an amusement of Bacon's hours of relaxation from the more laborious studies of law and duties of a court. His chief admirers have been persons of a literary turn who have an idea that scientific discoveries are accomplished by a mechanical mental operation. Bacon never produced any great practical result himself. No great physicist has ever made any use of his method. He has had the same to do with the development of modern science that the inventor of the orrery has to do with the discovery of the mechanism of the world. Of all the important physical discoveries, there is not one which shows that its author made it by the Baconian instrument. Newton never seems to have been aware that he was under any obligation to Bacon. Archimedes and the Alexandrians and the Arabians and Leonardo da Vinci did very well before he was born. The discovery of America by Columbus and the circumnavigation by Magellan can hardly be attributed to him, yet they were the consequences of a truly philosophical reasoning. But the investigation of nature is an affair of genius, not of rules. No man can invent an organon for writing tragedies and epic poems. Bacon's system is, in its own terms, an idol of the theatre. It would scarcely guide a man to a solution of the riddle of Elia, Lelia, Crispus, or to that of the charade of Sir Hilary. Few scientific pretenders have made more mistakes than Lord Bacon. He rejected the Copernican system and spoke insolently of its great author. He undertook to criticize adversely Gilbert's treatise The Magnete. He was occupied in the condemnation of any investigation of final causes, while Harvey was deducing the circulation of the blood from Aquapendente's discovery of the valves in the veins. He was doubtful whether instruments were of any advantage, while Galileo was investigating the heavens with the telescope. Ignorant himself of every branch of mathematics, he presumed that they were useless in science, but a few years before Newton achieved by their aid his immortal discoveries. It is time that the sacred name of philosophy should be severed from its long connection with that of one who was a pretender in science, a time-serving politician, an insidious lawyer, a corrupt judge, a treacherous friend, a bad man. End quote. 
this seems to me a deprecation as excessive as are the eulogies commonly current the truth probably lies somewhere between the two extremes it is unfair to judge bacon's methods by thinking of physical science in its present stage to realize his position we must think of a subject still in its very early infancy one in which the adversability of applying experimental methods is still doubted one which has been studied by means of books and words and discussion of normal instances instead of by collection and observation of the unusual and irregular and by experimental production of variety if we think of a subject still in this infantile and almost pre-scientific stage bacon's words and formulae are far from inapplicable they are within their limitations quite necessary and wholesome a subject in this stage strange to say exists psychology now hesitatingly beginning to assume its experimental weapons amid a stifling atmosphere of distrust and suspicion bacon's lack of the modern scientific instinct must be admitted but he rendered humanity a powerful service in directing it from books to nature herself and his genius is indubitable a judicious account of his life and work is given by professor adamson in the encyclopedia britannica and to this article i now refer you who then was the man of first magnitude filling up the gap in scientific history between the death of galileo and the maturity of newton unknown and mysterious are the laws regulating the appearance of genius we have passed in review a pole a dane a german and an italian the great man is now a frenchman rené descartes born in touraine on the thirty first of march fifteen ninety six his mother died at his birth the father was of no importance save as the owner of some landed property the boy was reared luxuriously and inherited a fair fortune nearly all the men of first rank you notice were born well off genius born to poverty might indeed even then achieve name and fame as we see in the case of kepler but it was terribly handicapped handicapped it is still but far less than of old and we may hope it will become gradually still less so as enlightenment proceeds and the tremendous moment of great men to a nation is more clearly and actively perceived it is possible for genius when combined with strong character to overcome all obstacles and reach the highest eminence but the struggle must be severe and the absence of early training and refinement during the receptive years of youth must be a lifelong drawback descartes had none of these drawbacks life came easily to him and as a consequence perhaps he never seems to have taken it quite seriously great movements and stirring events were to him opportunities for the study of men and manners he was not the man to court persecution nor to show enthusiasm for a losing or struggling cause in this as in many other things he was imbued with a very modern spirit a cynical and sceptical spirit which to an outside and superficial observer like myself seems rather rife just now he was also imbued with a face of scientific spirit which you sometimes still meet with though i believe it is passing away that is an uncultured absorption in his own pursuits and some feeling of contempt for classical and literary and aesthetic studies 
in politics art and history he seems to have had no interest he was a spectator rather than an actor on the stage of the world and though he joined the army of that great military commander prince maurice of nassau he did it not as a man with a cause at heart worth fighting for but precisely in the spirit in which one of our own gilded youths would volunteer in a similar case as a good opportunity for frolic and for seeing life he soon tired of it and withdrew at first to gay society in paris here he might naturally have sunk into the gutter with his companions but for a great mental shock which became the main epoch and turning point of his life the crisis which diverted him from frivolity to seriousness it was a purely intellectual emotion not excited by anything in the visible or tangible world nor could it be called conversion in the common acceptation of the term he tells us that on the eleventh of november sixteen nineteen at the age of twenty-four a brilliant idea flashed upon him the first idea namely of his great and powerful mathematical method of which i will speak directly and in the flush of it he foresaw that just as geometers starting with a few simple and evident propositions or axioms ascended by a long and intricate ladder of reasoning to propositions more and more abstruse so it might be possible to ascend from a few data to all the secrets and facts of the universe by a process of mathematical reasoning comparing the mysteries of nature with the laws of mathematics he dared to hope that the secrets of both could be unlocked with the same key that night he lapsed gradually into a state of enthusiasm in which he saw three dreams or visions which he interpreted at that time even before waking to be revelations from the spirit of truth to direct his future course as well as to warn him from the sins he had already committed his account of the dreams is on record but is not very easy to follow nor is it likely that a man should be able to convey to others any adequate idea of the deepest spiritual or mental agitation which has shaken him to his foundations his associates in paris were now abandoned and he withdrew after some wanderings to holland where he abode the best part of his life and did his real work even now however he took life easily he recommends idleness as necessary to the production of good mental work he worked and meditated but a few hours a day and most of those in bed he used to think best in bed he said the afternoon he devoted to society and recreation after supper he wrote letters to various persons all plainly intended for publication and scrupulously preserved he kept himself free from care and was most cautious about his health regarding himself no doubt as a subject of experiment and wishful to see how long he could prolong his life at one time he writes to a friend that he shall be seriously disappointed if he does not manage to see one hundred years this plan of not overworking himself and limiting the hours devoted to serious thought is one that might perhaps advantageously be followed by some over-laborious students of the present day at any rate it conveys a lesson for the amount of ground covered by descartes in a life not very long is extraordinary he must however have had a singular aptitude for scientific work and the judicious leaven of selfishness whereby he was able to keep himself free from care and embarrassments must have been a great help to him
and what did this versatile genius accomplish during his fifty-four years of life in philosophy using the term as meaning mental or moral philosophy and metaphysics as opposed to natural philosophy or physics he takes a very high rank and it is on this that perhaps his greatest fame rests he is the author you may remember of the famous aphorism cogito ergo sum in biology i believe he may be considered almost equally great certainly he spent a great deal of time in dissecting and he made out a good deal of what is now known of the structure of the body and of the theory of vision he eagerly accepted the doctrine of the circulation of the blood then being taught by harvey and was an excellent anatomist you doubtless know professor huxley's article on descartes in the lay sermons and you perceive in what high estimation he is there held he originated the hypothesis that animals are automata for which indeed there is much to be said from some points of view but he unfortunately believed that they were unconscious and non-sentient automata and this belief led his disciples into acts of abominable cruelty professor huxley lectured on this hypothesis and partially upheld it not many years since the article is included in his volume called science and culture concerning his work in mathematics and physics i can speak with more confidence he is the author of the cartesian system of algebraic or analytic geometry which has been so powerful an engine of research far easier to wield than the old synthetic geometry without it newton could never have written the principia or made his greatest discoveries he might indeed have invented it for himself but it would have consumed some of his life to have brought it to the necessary perfection the principle of it is the specification of the position of a point in a plane by two numbers indicating say its distance from two lines of reference in the plane like the latitude and longitude of a place on the globe for instance the two lines of reference might be the bottom edge and the left-hand vertical edge of a wall then a point on the wall stated as being for instance six feet along and two feet up is precisely determined these two distances are called coordinates horizontal ones are usually denoted by x and vertical ones by y if instead of specifying two things only one statement is made such as y equals two it is satisfied by a whole row of points all the points in a horizontal line two feet above the ground hence y equals two may be said to represent that straight line and is called the equation to that straight line similarly x equals six represents a vertical straight line six feet or inches or some other unit from the left-hand edge if it is asserted that x equals six and y equals two only one point can be found to satisfy both conditions that is the crossing point of the above two straight lines suppose an equation such as x equals y to be given this also is satisfied by a row of points that is by all those that are equidistant from bottom and left-hand edges in other words x equals y represents a straight line slanting upwards at forty five degrees the equation x equals two y represents another straight line with a different angle of slope and so on
the equation x squared plus y squared equals 36 represents a circle of radius 6. The equation 3x squared plus 4y squared equals 25 represents an ellipse, and in general, every algebraic equation that can be written down, provided it involve only two variables, x and y, represents some curve in a plane, a curve, moreover, that can be drawn, or its properties completely investigated, without drawing, from the equation. Thus, algebra is wedded to geometry, and the investigation of geometric relations by means of algebraic equations is called analytical geometry, as opposed to the old Euclidean or synthetic mode of treating the subject by reasoning consciously directed to the subject by help of figures. If there be three variables, x, y, and z, instead of only two, an equation among them represents not a curve in a plane, but a surface in space, the three variables corresponding to the three dimensions of space, length, breadth, and thickness. An equation with four variables usually requires space of four dimensions for its geometrical interpretation, and so on. Thus, geometry cannot only be reasoned about in a more mechanical and therefore much easier manner, but it can be extended into regions of which we have and can have no direct conception because we are deficient in sense organs for accumulating any kind of experience in connection with such ideas in physics proper descartes tract on optics is of considerable historical interest he treats all the subjects he takes up in an able and original manner in astronomy, he is the author of that famous and long-upheld theory, the doctrine of vortices. He regarded space as a plenum full of an all-pervading fluid. Certain portions of this fluid were in a state of whirling motion, as in a whirlpool or eddy of water, and each planet had its own eddy in which it was whirled round and round, as a straw is caught and whirled in a common whirlpool. This idea he works out and elaborates very fully, applying it to the system of the world and to the explanation of all the motions of the planets. This system evidently supplied a void in men's minds, left vacant by the overthrow of the Ptolemaic system, and it was rapidly accepted. In the English universities it held for a long time almost undisputed sway, it was in this faith that Newton was brought up. Something was felt to be necessary to keep the planets moving on their endless round, the primum mobile of Ptolemy had been stopped, an angel was sometimes assigned to each planet to carry it round, but though a widely diffused belief, this was a fantastic and not a serious scientific one. Descartes' vortices seemed to do exactly what was wanted. It is true they had no connection with the laws of Kepler, I doubt whether he knew about the laws of Kepler, he had not much opinion of other people's work, he read very little, found it easier to think. He travelled through Florence once, when Galileo was at the height of his renown, without calling upon or seeing him. In so far as the motion of a planet was not circular, it had to be accounted for by the jostling and crowding and distortion of the vortices. 
gravitation he explained by a settling down of bodies toward the center of each vortex and cohesion by an absence of relative motion tending to separate particles of matter he can imagine no stronger cement the vortices as descartes imagined them are not now believed in are we then to regard the system as absurd and wholly false i do not see how we can do this when to this day philosophers are agreed in believing space to be completely full of fluid which fluid is certainly capable of vortex motion and perhaps everywhere does possess that motion true the now imagined vortices are not the large worlds of planetary size they are rather infinitesimal worlds of less than atomic dimensions still a whirling fluid is believed in to this day and many are seeking to deduce all the properties of matter rigidity elasticity cohesion gravitation and the rest from it further although we talk glibly about gravitation and magnetism and so on we do not really know what they are progress is being made but we do not yet properly know much overwhelmingly much remains to be discovered and it ill behoves us to reject any well-founded and long-held theory as utterly and intrinsically false and absurd the more one gets to know the more one perceives a kernel of truth even in the most singular statements and scientific men have learned by experience to be very careful how they lop off any branch of the tree of knowledge lest as they cut away the dead wood they lose also some green shoot some healthy bud of unperceived truth however it may be admitted that the idea of a cartesian vortex in connection with the solar system applies if at all rather to an earlier its nebulous stage when the whole thing was one great whirl ready to split or shrink off planetary rings at their appropriate distances soon after he had written his great work the principia mathematica and before he printed it news reached him of the persecution and recantation of galileo he seems to have been quite thunderstruck at the tidings says mr mahaffey in his life of descartes he had started on his scientific journeys with the firm determination to enter into no conflict with the church and to carry out his system of pure mathematics and physics without ever meddling with matters of faith he was rudely disillusioned as to the possibility of this severance he wrote at once apparently november twentieth sixteen thirty three to mersenne to say he would on no account publish his work nay that he had at first resolved to burn all his papers for that he would never prosecute philosophy at the risk of being censored by his church Quote, i could hardly have believed he says that an italian and in favour with the pope as i hear could be considered criminal for nothing else than for seeking to establish the earth's motion though i know it has formerly been censored by some cardinals but i thought i had heard that since then it was constantly being taught even at rome and i confess that if the opinion of the earth's movement is false all the foundations of my philosophy are so also because it is demonstrated clearly by them it is so bound up with every part of my treatise that i could not sever it without making the remainder faulty 
and although I consider all my conclusions based on very certain and clear demonstrations, I would not, for all the world, sustain them against the authority of the Church. Ten years later, however, he did publish the book, for he had by this time hit on an ingenious compromise. He formally denied that the earth moved, and only asserted that it was carried along with its water and air in one of those large emotions of the celestial ether which produced the diurnal and annual revolutions of the solar system. So, just as a passenger on the deck of a ship might be called stationary, so was the earth. He gives himself out, therefore, as a follower of Tycho rather than of Copernicus, and says if the church won't accept this compromise he must return to the ptolemaic system but he hopes they won't compel him to do that seeing that it is manifestly untrue this elaborate deference to the powers that be did not indeed save the work from being ultimately placed upon the forbidden list by the church but it saved himself at any rate from annoying persecution he was not, indeed, at all willing to be persecuted, and would no doubt have at once withdrawn anything they wished. I should be sorry to call him a time-server, but he certainly had plenty of that worldly wisdom in which some of his predecessors had been so lamentably deficient. Moreover, he was really a skeptic, and cared nothing at all about the church or its dogmas. He knew the church's power, however, and the advisability of standing well with it. He therefore professed himself a Catholic, and studiously kept his science and his Christianity distinct. In saying that he was a skeptic, you must not understand that he was in the least an atheist. Very few men are. Certainly Descartes never thought of being one. The term is indeed ludicrously inapplicable to him, for a great part of his philosophy is occupied with what he considers a rigorous proof of the existence of the deity. At the age of fifty-three he was sent for to Stockholm by Christina, Queen of Sweden, a young lady enthusiastically devoted to study of all kinds, and determined to surround her court with all that was most famous in literature and science. Thither, after hesitation, the cart went. He greatly liked royalty, but he dreaded the cold climate. Born in Touraine, a Swedish winter was peculiarly trying to him, especially as the energetic queen would have lessons given her at five o'clock in the morning. She intended to treat him well, and was immensely taken with him, but this getting up at five o'clock on a November morning, to a man accustomed all his life to lie in bed till eleven, was a cruel hardship. He was too much of a courtier, however, to murmur, and the early morning audience continued. His health began to break down, he thought of retreating, but suddenly he gave way and became delirious. The queen's physician attended him, and of course wanted to bleed him. This, knowing all he knew of physiology, sent him furious, and they could do nothing with him. After some days he became quiet, was bled twice, and gradually sank, discoursing with great calmness on his approaching death, and duly fortified with all the rites of the Catholic Church. His general method of research was as nearly as possible a purely deductive one, that is, after the manner of Euclid, he starts with a few simple principles, and then, by a chain of reasoning, endeavors to deduce from them their consequences, 
and so to build up bit by bit an edifice of connected knowledge in this he was the precursor of newton this method when rigorously pursued is the most powerful and satisfactory of all and results in an ordered province of science far superior to the fragmentary conquests of experiment but few indeed are the men who can handle it safely and satisfactorily and none without continual appeals to experiment for verification it was through not perceiving the necessity for verification that he erred his importance to science lies not so much in what he actually discovered as in his anticipation of the right conditions for the solution of problems in physical science he in fact made the discovery that nature could after all be interrogated mathematically a fact that was in great danger of remaining unknown for observe that the mathematical study of nature the discovery of truth with a piece of paper and a pen has a perilous similarity at first sight to the straw-thrashing subtleties of the greeks whose methods of investigating nature by discussing the meaning of words and the usage of language and the necessities of thought had proved to be so futile and unproductive a reaction had set in led by galileo gilbert and the whole modern school of experimental philosophers lasting down to the present day men who teach that the only right way of investigating nature is by experiment and observation it is indeed a very right and an absolutely necessary way but it is not the only way a foundation of experimental fact there must be but upon this a great structure of theoretical deduction can be based all rigidly connected together by pure reasoning and all necessarily as true as the premises provided no mistake is made to guard against the possibility of mistake and oversight especially oversight all conclusions must sooner or later be brought to the test of experiment and if disagreeing therewith the theory itself must be re-examined and the flaw discovered or else the theory must be abandoned of this grand method quite different from the gropings in the dark of kepler this method which in combination with experiment has made science what it now is this which in the hands of newton was to lead to such stupendous results we owe the beginning and early stages to rené descartes End of lecture 6